Alfred Cecily from Global Net 21 and Info Voices, and this is one of the many webinars we do. And this one is going to look at climate change. And on the subject, it may sound pretty boring, but it's very critical, and that's trade agreements. Um, lots of people don't get into the detail of trade agreements, but it's a detail that counts. The devil's in the detail. And we're going to look at how trade agreements can impact on a climate change agenda, which I think is you know, an important thing for us to discuss. And we've got Ruth Bergen with us today. And Ruth is from Trade Justice. And she spends a lot of her time looking at these trade deals and looking at the impact on climate change. So Ruth, thank you for joining us. And um, maybe I could start by asking you if you could tell us a little bit, just a little bit about your background and your interest in trade justice. Sure, so I've worked for the trade justice movement for the past 11 years. Um, so I've worked on all kinds of different trade agreements um, from back when we were members of the EU, um, looking at economic partnership agreements, which are the trade agreements with developing countries um, through TTIP, so the Transatlantic uh, Trade and Investment Partnership, which was an EU-US deal that we managed to defeat. Um, then more recently looking at UK um, trade policy as it leaves the EU um, and that really opens up a whole raft of different trade agreements specifically so um, with the US as people will probably be aware of but also New Zealand, Australia, um, Liz Truss's grand plan to make us a Pacific nation as part of the comprehensive and supposedly progressive trans-Pacific partnership agreement. Um, but we also look thematically. So we look at the impact of trade agreements and trade policy for climate change, which is what we're talking about today. But we also cover issues like uh, the impacts for gender equality, for health. So lots of people have been aware of the debates around whether or not the NHS was going to be included in, in trade agreements. Um, Digital has been quite a big focus for us and something that we think is going to grow as an, as an issue. Um, so yeah, lots of quite a lot of different thematic angles that we look at. Well, well, let's let's start from basic, shall we? I mean, we all know what trade is, but a lot of people may not be aware of what trade justice means. It sounds a very strange term. Can you explain to us what trade justice means? So I think the starting point is that in kind of mainstream trade theory, the argument is, goes that if you increase trade, that will help to increase GDP growth and, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, everyone benefits. Um, and part of that is also that you develop a kind of bigger middle class and that that middle class will automatically then ask for uh, or demand and start kind of using its influence to achieve uh, better social environmental outcomes. So, so that's the logic. And our perspective is that actually, you know, 25 years on from the formation of the WTO, heading into a climate crisis, actually that logic just doesn't work. And that ideas or kind of policies and instruments to make sure trade works to the benefit of everybody and to the benefit of the climate and the environment need to be um, hardwired into that policy. Otherwise, what you get and what we see are trade agreements and trade flows that actually act against kind of social interests like equality, um, you know, like labor rights uh, and, 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 and environmental goals like improving kind of biodiversity um, and tackling climate change. So that's 
in, in summary, kind of where we come from. I mean, you, you talk about hardwired. I believe that you think that uh, any idea, any trade uh, agreement or negotiation has to be assessed against the contribute, assessed to how it contributes to climate and environmental goals. Um, that's not easy to do, is it? I mean, how do you get people who actually want to trade to increase their wealth to be able to hardwire that into it? So the first thing is to come back to this argument that if you're not actively designing trade deals to do good, the chances are you're probably causing kind of negative impacts, whether you like it or not. And, and that, you know, when you look at, for example, the impact assessments for TTIP or for the UK-US trade deal, they both predict increases in um, greenhouse gas emissions. So it's, it's already, we already know that it's, they're going to, the way they are designed is going to cause problems. I think the first step is to improve those impact assessments because although we have some of the headline bits and pieces in there that tell us that they're going to cause damage, actually we need a lot more detail in there um, to, to demonstrate that they're going to be problematic. Um, then, I mean, our approach is then to look at the different provisions of, of trade agreements and to ask questions about whether they are heading in the right direction um, to achieve what we want to achieve. So it's it's seeing trade as a means to an end rather than a, as an end is in itself. And I, I think that's the argument that we need to have. And it's not one that we will always win with people who, who just think the trade system ought to be about increasing trade. But I think actually there's growing recognition that um, it's not good enough to just assume that somewhere down the line, um, increased trade is going to lead somehow to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, particularly in a context where we know we've got 10 years to tackle mm -hmm. climate change. So does that mean that when an agreement's made, you hope that people will abide by what's called the precautionary principle? Is that something you work towards? And to explain to people, what is the precautionary principle? So the precautionary principle, is, it's interesting because the arguments around precautionary principle are quite kind of critical to trade policy. So the precautionary principle says that as a government or as a, if you're the EU, you're allowed to take action against something. So for example, say genetically modified crops, if there is, um, concern or fear that they might have a negative impact. You don't have to demonstrate that there will be a negative impact to be able to take action. The US takes quite a different approach and they tend to go for what they call science-based. So you need to prove that there is a risk, then you need to prove that there's gonna be damage in future in order to be able to take action. Um, and we think this is problematic because actually you can, you know, you can have to live through quite a lot of problems you know in order to kind of react whereas the the eu sort of is more cautious and it, it sort of says well we're, we're going to wait and see we're going to um not implement everything unless we're sure that it's it's safe and and this argument has been kind of going on for quite a long time and the the us has sort of won won the argument um at the wto and so the wto only accepts use of the precautionary principle in very limited circumstances um, and for quite a short time period. So for example, the EU has banned hormone-treated beef for some time and was challenged at the WTO um, by the US um, and the US won. 
So the EU continues to ban hormone-treated beef, but it now kind of pays a regular fine at the WTO in order to do that. Um, so when you're talking about the role of the, the World Trade Organization, are you talking about what's called the trade facilitation agreements, uh, uh, the deals that are in the pipeline as well? Like you mentioned TIPIT before, and we can come to that, the environmental goods agreement. I mean, that puts commercial decisions in the forefront, doesn't it? I mean, can you explain that and, and tell us how much of a barrier that is to actually getting people to look at climate change goals? So you mentioned the whole set of WTO agreements there. Um, the WTO has a number of founding agreements. The most well-known are probably GATT, the General Agreement on T Trade and Tariffs, and GATT, which is its sister um, agreement on services, but the one where you see the most kind of problematic provisions around things like the precautionary principle are in agreements like um, the, the agreement on technical barriers to trade, um, where it really puts a kind of heavy, um, or it sets quite a high bar for governments to pass to prove that measures they are taking are necessary in order to achieve what the WTO describes as a legitimate um, public policy aim. And th there are two problems with that. The first is the word necessary, and the second is the word legitimate, because the people who are left to interpret both of those words are trade lawyers, and, and they see it from the perspective of, does this uh, maximize trade liberalization? And if it doesn't, what, what are the really kind of sound scientific, not precautionary reasons why the government's doing that? In addition to that, governments are required to go and look around the world at whether there are other less trade distorting ways of doing what they want to do in policy terms. So it's been, it's been really quite problematic. And some of the examples of where the WTO has intervened are, um, for example, um, the dolphin tuna case where the US tried to ban a particular, it's called persane fishing of tuna that's quite um, dangerous for dolphins. So they banned it, Mexico challenged it successfully and for I think several decades, um, this case rumbled on. Now if you're the US, maybe you can afford to kind of keep, you know, keep defending yourself for several decades against the case. Many countries can't afford to do that. It also meant that the US policy on, on tuna fishing didn't get implemented properly for that whole time. So you can see the sorts of delays that WTO rules can have in practice on environmental policy. And that's just one example. There are, there are many others. I suppose, in a way, there's a, a contradiction in this WTO approach, isn't it? They want world liberalisation, but they also want regulatory collaboration between the, the big blocks. And those two principles don't really go together. It's not about liberalisation, actually. It's about restrictive practice. I think, I mean, for me, where you see the the biggest problem with 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 the sort of idea that the trade system is all about liberalization is in the intellectual property space so there's an agreement called trade related aspects of intellectual property agreement and what that does is not liberalize intellectual property which you might expect to mean 
greater sharing of research and ideas, right? So if you're going to increase trade, increase innovation, then probably what you want is maximum sharing of research and data. The WTO and trade agreements do the opposite. So they extend patent terms. Uh, they make it harder for countries to produce, say, generic versions. Um, that applies particularly to medicines. And there's already a fight at the WTO around the COVID vaccine. But you've seen it, um, for example, also with um, things like green technology. You know, if you if if we need want solar panels to be distributed around the world quickly, we need as many countries as possible to be looking not just at kind of whether they can produce it more cheaply, but whether they can adapt to their own circumstances. You know, kind of dust, humidity, um, heat, cold. We need people to be working on all of those different aspects and the patent extensions can, can create real barriers to that. It's a bit like COVID, isn't it? Where people want to share the vaccines cheaply, but the, you know, the companies have the intellectual property rights and that makes it difficult. And you're talking about this in terms of green technology. They make it hard to share green technology. So solar panels, instead of being able to be made by developed countries, the price that is low, they're having to pay the high price. And that's the thing, I guess, that you're really campaigning against. And, and just to, to add to that, that one of the things that is really troubling about the way the WTO works is, is in re it relates to the, kind of the notion of a just transition. So where not only do you need technology transfer, but you need to make sure that you're, um, you're providing jobs. For, so for people who are working, say, in fossil fuel industries, you need to be able to transition them away from those jobs into other jobs. And some countries have tried to do that. So, for example, Canada had a renewable um, energy feed-in tariff. But in order to be able to benefit from that tariff, companies had to demonstrate that a proportion of a project was going to directly benefit the local community. So it's 50 to 60 percent of inputs had to come from the local area, which is obviously quite a good way of demonstrating benefits to local areas. Now, this fell foul of what's called, it's called a local content ban in WTO agreements. And it says that you must not require that an investment shows local benefits. So the WTO doesn't like that. And what, what I think is really troubling is that it's obvious that countries around the world actually, in order to transition, to green technology, to green energy, need to show politically that it's going to benefit local populations. I mean, it makes it makes just it's just common sense, really, right? Um, and time and again, they're getting tripped up by WTO provisions. So you know, India has taken the US to, to WTO tribunal. The the US retaliated against India. The EU has gone after China, and so on and so on. So. You know, the WTO really gets into the nuts and bolts of how you deliver so many projects that are going to be really important for tackling um, climate change. It sounds in a way like um, you're trying to get back to the medieval idea of the just price, not a price that is organised or developed by commercial competition. It's not such a medieval idea because John Maynard Keynes believed in it as well. Um, but it, it, I mean, I think you're trying to create a new sort of economics, aren't you? One which looks at a price that people can afford. You look at, you're looking at exchange value based on need and not on want. And that's, that's really an important change, isn't it? I think, I mean, we're really focused on trade policy and trade deals. And I, I think our main message is just that 
they they need to be set against our other aims and ideally they actually need to be at the service of those aims so if if we need to tackle climate change in 10 years time we need to design our trade policy so that it fits with that and too often those things are discussed in silos uh, so you don't see that alignment between trade policy and climate and environmental goals and the other problem that we have at the moment is that trade policy is very much enforceable and very much binding whereas climate agreements are neither of those things so if the uk breaks the terms of an agreement with the us in trade there will be real consequences the us will impose uh, higher tariffs or it will stop uk companies from being able to bid for pro procurement contracts say those are real impacts if the uk breaks its voluntary um, nationally defined contribution for its climate commitments there is no way for other countries to hold it to account for that. And that's a huge problem. So I think it's about achieving balance in terms of our, our international commitments. I mean, from what you said, I understand that uh, when a trade agreement is reached, it's a sort of enshrined principle that, you know, no other agreement must in any way counteract that negatively. And that includes the 2015 Paris Agreement, doesn't it? If that were to negate the trade agreement's commercial interest, then it's considered null and void. So I think it's not quite as a direct a link as that. Um, and it, it's worth saying that there tends to be reference to the climate agreement and to environmental agreements in a lot of trade deals. Um, what's also worth mentioning on the other hand though, is that the references to the climate deal are not binding. So for example, there's nothing that says, if you break the terms of your, if you break what you've agreed to in the Paris deal, um, that renders part of this trade agreement null and void. Uh, and what the trade agreement um, will always say is that um, countries have the freedom to do what they want in policy terms on, on climate and the environment, provided that it's not more trade distorting than necessary. And then we go back to who decides what is trade distorting and necessary. So that's where you, you kind of end up with, with problems in, in the trade deal. Now, and I mean, th there are provisions around the right to regulate. Again, not, not, so provisions around the right to regulate are included in trade deals, but not under the enforceability provisions that other aspects of the trade deal are included in. Um, so it sounds from what you were saying that often these decisions are made in secret and silos. And it means that, you know, things like fossil fuel extraction, shipping and, and consumption agreements can be made about that and you don't know what they are. So, you know, what accountability is there? That's the big problem. How do we ensure that there is accountability or is that just gone by the board? So this is a big fight that we've been having in the UK since the EU referendum vote, because obviously the UK gets its trade policy fully back um, and has had it back um, as of this year, effectively. Um, and so one of the big things that we have been calling for is a proper process for scrutiny. Um, ideally, we would also like kind of proper public engagement in, in the development of trade policy and trade deals. But at a very basic level, we wanted Parliament to have oversight of what was going into trade deals 
So that meant at the beginning of the process, helping to shape the mandate. So the bit that sets out what the government is going to seek to do with the agreement, to be able to see negotiating texts as they're being developed during the negotiations, and then to have a vote on the final deal. And the government has time and again pushed back on this. I think last week we lost yet another vote in the Commons, um, not by very much. We, got, we even got a few Conservative rebels, um, but MPs are unwilling to vote to give themselves the right to properly scrutinise trade deals. And it's really, I mean, this is a very basic thing that we're asking for and that the government is not willing to see concede and that MPs from the Conservative benches are not voting for. So, you know, I should say there, there are a set of Conservative MPs who have been very supportive, um, but for the most part, they're voting against an amendment in the trade bill, which would give them some say over, over uh, trade agreements. And what will happen instead is that the government will set the mandate, do the negotiations, agree the deal without any requirement for any transparency, although they've committed to releasing some bits of information, but in practice, they often just don't tell you the bits that you really need to know to understand what's going on. At the end of that process, they will use the Constitutional Reform and Government Act. They will lay a several thousand page document before Parliament. MPs will have a total of 21 sitting days to look at that document. They then have to find a day, an opposition day, of which there are only 20 in any Parliament. Um, so they'll have to find an opposition day and allocate that to scrutinise the deal and then push it to a vote. This is really not straightforward because this is 21 days to cover everything that the opposition party might want to raise in Parliament independently. Um, and even if Parliament were to vote against it, and of course the stakes are really high at this point because what you have is an agreed deal with a partner. So if Parliament says no to it, you will be already upsetting potentially quite a key trade partner. And, and that's, you know, it's quite a big pressure for MPs. Never mind that they've got to understand what's in a, a very detailed legal document. I get that. I, I guess a lot of MPs are quite scared post-Brexit that they need to get the deal, they're rushing into it, so they will cut edges very quickly. But it's even worse than that, isn't it? Because it's not just a national thing, it's a global thing. And there are such things as corporate courts out there, um, ISDSs, and those are courts which meet in secret and deal with conflicts between corporations and governments. And they uh, corporations can then sue um, countries, nations for loss of profits. For small countries that can be devastating. So you're not fighting just the national parliament, you're looking at international legal agreements as well, which mitigate, mitigate against any agreement on climate change you might want. Yeah, I mean, I have worked on um, investor-to-state dispute settlement for um, about six years now, and I'm yet to find a good justification for them. They, I mean, they're really an aberration. They're, they're really just a, a, an unbelievable aspect of the whole kind of trade and investment world. And they're at a very fundamental level. They ask taxpayers, ordinary people, to ensure the business risk of international investors. No other actor has that kind of coverage. Domestic companies are not covered by the system, individuals, do not have this kind of insurance for their activities overseas. 
Um, the, uh, the amounts of awards go way beyond anything that a domestic court would give, and international investors are much more successful using this secretive system uh, than they are in, in domestic courts. And the, the single biggest subject of dispute is environmental and climate measures. So we currently have cases, um, for example, Westmoreland are suing Canada for phase out of coal-fired power stations. Uniper have th threatened the same against the Netherlands. RWE just, said, just declared that they are indeed going to sue the Netherlands for that. UK Rockhopper are suing Italy for banning the exploitation of gas and oil off their coastline. The list goes on. It, I mean, and it's really the opposite of what we need right now if we're serious about tackling climate change. So our very clear position is that this, this, this ought to be um, ended <laughs> and immediately. Um, one of the problems with these deals is that they insert so-called sunset clauses that can last for 15, 20 years. So even if you end a treaty or a part of a treaty, you, you're often still living with it for a number of years. Um, it's really just an outrageous part of the kind of international trade and investment landscape, and we should all be trying to get rid of it. So what do we need? Do we need to put pressure on our government, thinking the national government, na nationalities, nations can do the, uh, the, the business on this? Or do we, are we looking for a new Bretton Woods agreement, the agreement that took place after the war, and that needs to be revised, bearing in mind the climate imperative that we face now. We need a totally redesigned international trade and investment system. So in terms of ISDS, a number of countries are already pulling out. South Africa cancelled theirs, India are reviewing theirs. Uh, Brazil has never had them and came up with a completely different approach, so that is possible. Um, our current UK government are big cheerleaders for ISDS. Uh, Ranil Jayawardena is a minister. Um, he used to work for an investment company called the Children's Investment Fund that sued India using uh, the ISDS system. And the UK has always been quite a big champion. We have a very big industry of law firms that support the system, so not just kind of supporting UK companies to sue other countries, but supporting countries around the world to take cases. We also have a, a big hub for what's called third, third party funders. So this is a group of um, hedge funds, other operators who finance uh, cases. So where a company can't afford to take the case itself, a third party funder will invest for a, a return on um, any any award that's given. And I mean, this kind of fuels the industry because it starts to make it, you know, a kind of profit making thing on its, on its own. Um, so the UK has a lot at stake in terms of the industry. We're also quite a big user. I think we come up about fourth or fifth usually in terms of number of cases originating from any country. So we're fairly big users of it. So. I don't have much faith that this government, through kind of careful reason, is going to get rid of this system. However, I think we, we do need a big campaign to try and get rid of it. And, and I know that, um, so the trade justice movement is not a campaigning organisation of ourselves. In ourselves, we're a network of 60 different organisations, but some of our members are campaigning on it. So Global Justice Now, for example, are quite active um, on it. Um, but lots of organisations have, have kind of strong positions against it. And, and to come to your point about a, a, an alternative approach, um, 
it's certainly our position is that we need something different. The current trade system just isn't working in terms of helping us to get where we need to be, um, particularly on, on the climate and, and environment. Um, I should say that we don't have a kind of ready-made version of that, but the closest we've come to it are two different things we worked on. The first was the trade relationship that we thought we could have with the EU. So clearly leaving the EU, we didn't think it was a tenable position for us to be saying, let's walk away without a trade deal. Uh, that was going to be damaging to the UK economy. So we, we tried to come up with what we thought were the, the kind of foundation stones for um, an alternative approach to trade. Um, and you can find some that on our website. We were also involved in something called the Alternative Trade Mandate, which is now quite a few years old, but was an EU-wide project where um, civil society organizations got together and, and again, tried to kind of shape what they thought um, a, a good model trade system might look like. So you mentioned your own organization, Trade Justice, and you consists of a network of a lot of voluntary organizations, which brings me to sort of the penultimate question, and that is the role of civil society. How important is it that uh, civil society, community groups, voluntary groups, NGOs, put pressure on as much as they can to check to, to actually get the national government to act what in a way you would call responsibly in this and to also work with global civil society to change and help redesign the, the trading system. So I, I think it's really important that the way that trade deals are designed these days means that they impact on almost every aspect of everyday life. So we've talked about briefly touched on their impact on health um, you know many aspects of UK health provision are covered by trade agreements um, whatever the government says about it um, you know it, it can impact on our ability to deal with climate change um, you know the way we organize our digital space and digital rights um, you know all kinds of, of, of things lots of people will have seen the coverage around food standards um, you know, the, the food that we have in schools and hospitals is impacted um, by this. So I think whatever your your kind of burning issue is, the chances are it's impacted on by trade agreements and it will shape the way that we are able to respond um, for decades to come. So, so I think it's really important that people understand it. Um, so something that we would be really interested in getting involved in and we we haven't managed to get it off the ground really is um, we think a sort of national conversation about trade needs to happen so sort of a bit of education for people so that because I think a lot of people don't understand quite how uh, wide-ranging trade agreements are and just how much of an impact they can have on on everyday life I think that includes MPs I don't I don't think MPs have yet um, been able to make time to understand, you know, this new role that they've got of holding the, the government to account for their trade policy, um, and again, kind of what the implications are of it. Um, so yeah, really important. I mean, whether, whether you're interested in fracking, um, you know, where your food comes from, um, how your health systems are developed, where, who provides your, your water, um, you know, what, what kinds of environmental policy you might you might like, all of these things are, are impacted on by trade agreements. 
Okay, so if anybody wants to know more about what you do, about trade justice, get in touch with you, where would they go? So we, we're not very well, we, we have a, a staff consisting of two people. <laughs> um, we will be growing, but we don't, as an organization, kind of deal directly with sort of individual inquiries. Um, the, the organ so in terms of like actual individual inquiries, um, organizations like Global Justice Now, Friends of the Earth, um, WWF, trade unions like Unison, Unite and the GMB, um, Greeny UK, um, they all have kind of active um, campaigns or, or advocacy um, projects ongoing and they're probably your best bet in terms of um, having a bit more capacity to respond directly to people. Um, we, we have lots of information on our website, uh, tjm.org.uk. We have a Twitter account at, at TradeJusticeMov. Um, you can check all of that out and, and kind of see what we're up to. Okay, well, we'll try and put some of those sites up. And we've already done an interview with, for example, Nick Dearden from Global Justice Now, and, and that was really good, and we can promote that again. Anyhow, I mean, thank you for doing that, because as I started by saying, international trade or trading relationships do not sound exciting, but when you look at it, they should be, because they can affect everything that we do and all the things that matter to us most. So I think it's really, you know, good that you've done this with us today, and I hope we can do what you hope we can do, and that is get other people to talk about it and to engage in a conversation about the impact of trade agreements on our health and on our, our living and on, on, our, on our environment as well. So, you know, it's great you, you've done this. So thank you for doing this with us today, Ruth. And um, we'll uh, end this interview now. Yeah.